the road to recovery. You might be cruising down it. A friend or family member lost on it. Or the road is, well, still under construction. Relevant Recovery Radio is about getting to that destination of normal health, mind, or strength. Now, Relevant Recovery Radio, here to give you the keys, Larry Weedy Kind. Hello. Welcome to this episode of Relevant Recovery Radio. I'm your host today. My name is Heather Mosier. I'm partnered with Matthews Hope Detox and Recovery Program in beautiful downtown Houston. And on the show today, my guest is my better half. I don't know. Donnie. I go with that. (laughs) Better half. I think that that's what people say. I don't know who's the better half. But my guest is Donnie today. Um, I like having him on the show with me because we help a lot of people in recovery and I learn and grow from him he learns and grows from and with me and today's topic is going to be relapse and and how can someone prevent relapse from a spiritual or a 12-step angle uh, the knowledge that we have gained and so welcome Donnie to the show and also kind of how well thank you yeah, Thank you. Hi. But I think also how people around it deal with it, right? So yeah. when you have somebody around you mm-hmm. who needs to get sober, it's obvious to the whole world except for that person. What do you do? Right. Like, how do you act? I think that that's the conversation that I would like to have because working in a detox, I get the opportunity to help a lot of people. You and I help a lot of people for free in our in our personal and private life and and relapse you know, sometimes you hear, oh, relapse is a part of recovery, <laughs> right? That's like the tag phrase that gets, you know, trendy and common. And I think that it's not. I disagree with that phrase. I think that people take on that idea as if relapse is somehow a good part of a journey to recovery. I think it's part of learning lessons, but it's really about the mistakes of what you didn't do or should have done that end up in a relapse. I was a chronic relapser uh, for many, many years. And, And so even though relapse is a part of my story, it was really showing me again and again and again that I was not doing what I needed to do to get well. And so from that aspect of learning lessons, I think that we should be picking up what it's teaching us. You didn't do enough or there's some piece missing, but you're the one chip wonder that just walked into a fellowship and and happened to stay sober. But unfortunately, you're kind of the enigma. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. It shouldn't be that way. I think what it was is that I just, I I tried every avenue I could before I walked into that fellowship. But let me ask you this. Hmm. So prior to those relapses, when it was time to get sober, whether you knew it or not, how did your family act and looking back, what would have helped you the most? What was beautiful about what my family ultimately did. So in the beginning, they were trying to figure out ways to help me. Uh, they would drive me to this detox or they would, you know, call treatment centers and get me in or they would, you know, believe my lies that I needed $40 for gas and come <laughs> meet me or whatever it was. And and that went on for a few years. But what the beauty one time I I had panhandled right for from food money and I called my dad once to beg him to bring me some food because I was very hungry and and he wouldn't and he actually would drive by the area that I was in uh, on his way to work and I thought just bring me a hamburger from Brahms or a box of cereal like anything and he said Heather do not ever call me again unless you want to go to treatment 
Oh, wow. See, that sounds counterintuitive <laughs> to a family member, right? To these people who are struggling with their children or their spouse. That yeah. sounds counterintuitive. It was a beautiful boundary that he finally set with me that because the help that they were providing wasn't help. It was actually enabling me and prolonging my relapses. I didn't know that then. They they, they realized it at some point. And, and, and how is that? Is it because your life had to get to a certain difficulty? I believe so. I think that if I was able to have my life band-aided by other people if someone's giving me money or a place to live or bringing me food why would I ever surrender to a program and and do the work that's required Mm -hmm. Um, I'm getting by just fine and I'm still getting loaded so I just didn't have uh, the core necessity that desperation that's required because people were band-aiding my life for a while and so he removed all of my help. He uh, set that tough love boundary and he stopped enabling me. And I, at the time, I was so upset. <laughs> at the time, I thought he didn't love me. Mm-hmm. I thought he didn't care about me. Didn't. I'm never going to talk to him again. Yep. Yep. Done with him. Um, and at the time, I didn't realize that he was actually finally helping me. And in essence, it sounds like he turned you over to God. Like basically handed you over to God and said, I can't. What he literally said is, Heather, you need more help than I can give you. Mm. He understood that whatever the help it was that I needed, he didn't have the tools or the knowledge or the skill set or the supernatural capability to provide that. He couldn't do it for me. And when we talk about that possibility of enabling, you see it all the time. I see it all the time, right? What does that look like? It looks like um, I can't put him out on the street. Then I'll be homeless. They're not going to (laughs) eat. Yep, they're hungry. Yeah. And I think the other things, like we've sponsored a lot of people, and so we'll see people that maybe their parents endlessly pay for sober living or endlessly pay for trips to rehab or endlessly, you know, put them in school and trying to focus on education and other things when they're not even able to maintain sobriety yet. And it's like putting the cart before the horse. Okay, so... Your spouse. Now, not the current one, because the one you have now is most excellent. Let's say like <laughs> a past spouse or a hypothetical spouse Okay. goes out yeah. and, is, and needs to get sober. What do you do as a spouse? Wow. You know, when you and I first started dating with us both being in recovery, we debated this idea. And after walking through some couples that are friends of ours navigate that, what I realized is it's hard to know what you would do other than the boundaries. Like we jokingly say, if, if I go back out, you have about five minutes to lock me out of all the bank accounts and the credit cards and right. <laughs> change the locks. But it's a it's because if that happened, I would I would need help that you can't provide and you would need to protect our home and protect the security of our family over yep. my illness. Well, and, and also it looks that way. Even I'm saying go by a spouse that goes back out, but a spouse that's just out. Yeah. A spouse that's out. Maybe maybe the spouse that's sober or that is normal starts to get out into Al-Anon mm. or one of these resources out there. Yeah, I agree with that very much. I think that that's the source of finding out the difference between helping versus enabling. Uh, I think yeah. Al-Anon is great for that. Well, and, and what it is is that the, the normal spouse reaches out for some sort of help because they can't fix or make the other one sober. Right. They're powerless Brilliant. over that, that, yeah. spouse, that spouse, that loved one. Well, we're going to take a quick break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. You're listening to Relevant Recovery Radio.
listening to Relevant Recovery Radio. I'm your host, Heather Mosier. In studio with me is my husband, Donnie Mosier. Hello. <laughs> so before the break, we were talking about the difference between helping and enabling. I was giving you um, a little bit of a synopsis of how my, my parents cut me off. And the beauty in what they did, I can't imagine what that was like for them to have to go through. Because basically... They had to treat me like I was already deceased, like I was already gone. I watched a woman in the fellowship struggle with this, mm-hmm. right? And you know her daughter. I know her daughter. Mm-hmm. And her daughter was out. Her daughter was not sober. And I watched her struggle and cry and say, I have to give her over to God. But what if God wants to take her? Right. Like that's what you're faced with as a loved one yeah. when somebody close to you needs to get sober but doesn't want to do it. Right. And so it's almost like you really are. You're, you're giving them over to the de- possibility of death. And I think I agree. And that, that's what's the hardest part because you love them and you want the best for them and you just want to keep fighting for their life, even if they mm-hmm. won't seemingly fight for their life. Right. But I think that, you know, the idea of me being a chronic relapser and you being a one-chip wonder, meaning you came to the program, came to the fellowship, and you just got sober and stayed sober. The one thing that we had in common, though, when we both got sober, <laughs> whether when that time was— you were out of ideas, and I was finally depleted of ideas on how I was going to stay sober. And as I walk through this journey with people, everybody has so many, you know, base or radical ideas of how they think they're going to stay sober this time. Well, this time I'm going to do 90 meetings in 90 days, or mm. this time I'm going to go to sober living, or this time uh, I'm, I'm going to move states and get away from that guy or that toxic girl, or this time I'm going to, you know what I mean? Everybody has so many ideas of what they think will help keep them sober. I'm going to take up the gym. I'm going to get in better physical what exercise. They, what I'm they gonna... don't realize is that all of those ideas are what got them there in the first place. Right. And the they ideas, can't let go of them. The ideas are the problem. Right. I mean, that's you and I are living in that world, right? We hear this all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think, so, you know, the difference is that in my world, when I got sober, uh, I, there was no, nobody was hounding me. My ex-wife was the perfect enabler. Just let me do what I wanted to do. She was just pretty much done with me. I was living alone at that point, but in the house with another human. Um, But inside, I was done. Inside, I I wanted to die. I I was okay with dying. I I was never suicidal, but I I would lay in bed at night thinking, well, if I do die in my sleep, I'm okay with it because I'm really, really tired. Yeah, And that's the point I ultimately got to. Because my sister will ask me, people ask me all the time, what was it that was different? What was it? Because I went to treatment five times. I wanted to be sober for years before I got sober. So everybody's like, well, what was your rock bottom? And I'm like, no, rock bottom's a myth. And that physical idea is a myth. The the physical rock bottom idea is a myth. And why? Why? Because when I got sober. You had had all your things. Externally, I had cars and house and job. I had all that stuff. And so if you say that there's this rock bottom where you're going to have to be Narcan or What did you have when you got sober? I I had nothing, but you had everything. But that's that's just a a validation of your point that you literally had nothing. And I had nothing for years and I wasn't getting sober. And I had everything and wasn't getting sober. But Mm -hmm. what happened for me was an internal bottom. And yeah. I think that's what happened for you. I, you know, it's like a, an emotional death mm-hmm. where 
I give up the fight. There's this, you know, paradox idea that somehow I'm going to have to fight for my sobriety every day for the rest (laughs) of my life. (laughs) And what? I can't think of a more miserable existence if that was true. What have you done for your sobriety? Like, what did you do to make (laughs) it happen? What did I do, right? Yeah. I was out of ideas. I surrendered all of me. I found the end of Heather, and I worked some steps and got connected to the power. You gave up. I gave up. I gave up. Not fight it. And not fighting, right? I gave up. Right. And I finally just took some suggestions from some women before me that seemed to stay sober and seemed to know what they were talking about. And and I just remember these these steps. Everybody's telling me I got to work these steps, you know? <laughs> I remember thoughts when I first when I first got sober. We were going to this club out in Katy. And the guy that got me sober was somebody who was really in that book of that fellowship, really yeah. strong. And we were rolling to a few different meetings and just, I, I at this point, I'm just repeating stuff out of this book, but he knows it, right? He's been around. You're parroting. I'm parroting. <laughs> and I remember this older lady one time saying, gosh, I really hope you guys come back. This is so refreshing. And in my mind, I just pictured us both like walking into this meeting in like dusters and cowboy hats, <laughs> like these black, and like kicking the door in, like, we're here. <laughs> Like we're going to become the kings of this fellowship. <laughs> yeah, like spiritual gurus, right? So ridiculous. <laughs> right? Because yet again, I had this idea that I was doing anything. And what I didn't know is that really what I had done is given up. I had right. completely given up, threw my hands in the air, and said, I, I don't know what to do. Please help me. And one example of that, because people are like, what does that mean? How do you give up? You know, how do you get out of ideas? One thing I see all the time from people in going through treatment is they will fight really hard for a certain discharge plan. Oh, yeah. No, nope, yeah. I'm going here. I think this place is the right for I don't need sober. And I'm like, oh, you haven't given up. Right. <laughs> this, right. this is case in point problematic, is that you still think that you know what you need. If that was true, you would have applied it, and you wouldn't be in detox right now. It's literally like me going to SpaceX and being like, look, I'm going to go up on your ship, but I'm going to want to go ahead and control it and program it. Get out of the way. <laughs> Even right. though you've never seen a SpaceX before. I have no idea what that right? machine is. And so that that was the point I got to is I had been around the rooms for years and I had heard that the solution is somehow spiritual or somehow getting connected to God or a higher power. And, and I was prejudiced. I thought, what can you people teach me about God? And I was like, hey. Uh, and you were atheist. Me and him ain't talking. I blocked him <laughs> on my phone. And so, but, you know. I believed in God every time I got loaded. So this faith that I had apparently wasn't sufficient to keep me sober. And that's even what the literature talks about, that faith alone is insufficient to be vital. It must be accompanied by work and self-sacrifice. But I think even before we look for that faith, we just have to be broken. I just have to be at the end of me. You know what really broke me? Understanding my illness for the first time ever. Mm. Uh, You know, I ended up in a class with someone who had many years sober and was teaching this literature and doing this stuff, and and he described to me something that the literature calls chronic alcoholism. Okay, the chronic. The chronic. And and according to the literature, a chronic alcoholic is the same thing as a real alcoholic. It's the same thing as a powerless alcoholic, same thing as a hopeless variety alcoholic. Mm -hmm. It's a certain type of alcoholic. So someone can have a problem with alcohol or drugs and not be chronic, And, and so I am sitting in this class, and he's explaining that it's just two symptoms. 
two symptoms only. There's not this 46 questionnaire of mild, moderate, and severe. And this what compli- about the crazy stuff I did? Nope, doesn't matter. And so, oh. <laughs> no, because that's what everybody thinks. If, 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 unfortunately, if we went to any meeting anywhere and, and I said, hey, I'm new, what does it mean to be powerless? You know, Susie Q in the corner is going to say, well, I drink a handle of wild turkey every weekend, so I'm powerless. Or Bob's going to say, I got three DWIs, so I'm powerless. Or, you know, I used to show up without some of my clothes on at four in the morning and not know where they went. Or she divorced me, so I'm an alcoholic. And I'm like, oh, the problem is 1700 DWIs. (laughs) It's all external reasons of these clues of what you think makes you a chronic alcoholic and actually. Chronic alcoholism has nothing to do with anything external. Here's the case in point. Externally, I had nothing, yet I have chronic alcoholism. Mm -hmm. And externally, you had everything, yet you had chronic alcoholism. And we both had fairly decent lives as kids growing up, like no abuses. And yet we know people that have had abuses. So yet again... The externals don't matter because some people have went through terrible childhoods that do not grow up to be drug addicts or alcoholics. And some alcoholics didn't have any abuse or trauma as a child. And so that can't be the common denominator and the literature proves that that's not the common denominator. There's only two common denominators. Having this allergy to alcohol, meaning when I put it in my body, I crave more and I don't have control over the amount. And and more problematic than that is that my thinking is insane that precedes the first drink. Right. I've been through a drinking career where I've got this stack of evidence <laughs> that, that you don't I drink have well. no business drinking yet, and I yet come up with a new idea all the time. That insanity is the, the tipping point of chronic alcoholism. It's this proof that even though I want to stay sober, I fail to stay sober. I don't have the ability to manage the choice not to drink ever again. And so that's what sold me. That's when I knew I really needed outside help. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Relevant Recovery Radio. Listening to Relevant Recovery Radio on KPRC AM 950 or the Art Radio app. My name is Heather Mosier. I work Donnie for Matthews Mosier. Hope. My husband Donnie is here. Uh, real quickly, before I forget, I want to make sure I include some information of how you can contact Matthews Hope and get more information about our detox and two-year aftercare mm. recovery program. For those people that need help. There are guarantee everybody knows somebody who's touched with addiction or, or needing some help. And so our website is www.matthewshope.org. Or you can call our 24-7 intake line at 844-AND-HOPE. That is 844-263-4673. All right, so Donnie, before the break, we were talking about my life, my world being turned upside down because someone finally explained to me why I couldn't stop or stay Not only why I couldn't stop and stay stopped, but why... I had this crazy static in my head for a long time, mm-hmm. right? All these thoughts and craziness. And I, I thought I was crazy for a long time. Yeah. I think that for me, hearing the cycle of addiction from our literature, hearing good ex- explanations of mm-hmm. the physical allergy and the mental obsession, this dual litmus test for chronic, because they talk about the moderate or the hard drinker than the chronic or, or the powerless variety. And I started off 
uh, as a cute or hard drinker. Oh, uh, you're a cute I was, drinker. Yeah, I was a cute. Um, but I progressed at some point into this chronic because old Heather, 10, 15, 20 years ago, I did have a choice about whether or not I was going to drink that mm-hmm. night. And I did have control sometimes over the amount. But what I had to look at is my most recent experiences with drugs or alcohol, I'd actually lost both. Right. And so once I understood the gravity of my illness, I'm well, like, Wait a minute. Huh? So you realized it was an illness. Yeah. This is the part that I think that people don't understand. Mm-hmm. Right. We've seen it when somebody's trying to get sober, the loved ones around them, they're angry. Yeah. They've been pushed away. They're upset. How could you do this again? Right. And what we can't get them to understand is literally uh, this illness of alcoholism and uh, cancer. Really no different. It's a sickness that I have. That needs a specific treatment. Yes. And if you don't have that treatment, you're 100% guaranteed to get loaded again. And the way to get this this illness into Remission. remission for me is that I had to get in this fellowship, I had to get a sponsor, I had to work the steps, I had to get connected to a power greater than myself. And then, then the program, the program that you and I follow, yeah. is a program of helping others. Helping others. Now people come up with all, a, kinds, all of ancillary kinds of other ideas, answers of what it is. That's really what it's about, is I stay connected to that power through helping others, which is the last thing this selfish guy ever thought You're pretty doing. selfish, I do have to say. I mean, listen, <laughs> on a scale of 1 to 10, it's like a 15. <laughs> I'm probably a 16. But, so when we look at that in context, though, most people don't know that if they are chronic, if they have those two symptoms... Well, the, I was the last to know, by you, the way. Me too. Everybody else knew, <laughs> right? Everybody last. else was like, Heather, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, but... The thing is, is once you become that, once your illness progresses to chronic territory, the cucumber never becomes the pickle again. You will have this illness till the day you die. There is no cure, but there is a treatment. There is a solution. Well, and I think the first thing for the alcoholic and his family is for them to first realize that they have the illness. That's the first that's the first thing I had to admit. And I remember like. It was a breakthrough for me. <laughs> I remember being sober for a bit and calling some old friends or talking to people and being like, yeah, I had to quit drinking. I'm an alcoholic. And you could almost hear like <laughs> in their voice like, oh, they knew it. And they're yeah. like, yeah, I, we I know. We all knew, right? Yeah. yeah. I think that that's the beauty of what my family did for me, cutting me off. I, I tried everything to get sober. I switched states. Mm-hmm. Uh, I switched people. I switched everything. And the problem wasn't alcohol for me or drugs. The problem was Heather. And wherever I went, there I was. The problem can still be Heather at times. Yeah, the problem still always with you. Heather, right? Whether I was drinking or not drinking, the problem is always my internal condition. Yeah. Didn't know that. I thought the problem was the wrong husbands and the bratty kids. All and the externals. All the externals. I was full of self-pity. Yep. And so when we look in context of trying to give family members or loved ones advice, I do agree with you. The first thing to understand, even though they can't, a normal person cannot actually wrap their brain around no choice. That's correct. They don't understand this this illness Because they have a choice about whether or not they're going to put drinks or drugs in their body. If their loved one has cancer and the doctor says, here's the treatment here's plan, the illness. I need them in here once a week, we're going to give them chemo, we're going to do this, it's a long treatment plan, it's it's repeated visits, they right. get that. Right. And, oh, and at the same it. time with that family member, you're not pissed off that they had too many carbs and then ended up with cancer. <laughs> right. right. It's like when we go down this rabbit hole of why, yeah. why are you a drug addict? Why are you an alcoholic? You've had a good life. We've yeah. always loved you. All of the, There is no external that creates the why. And it does no good to go down that rabbit hole of trying to figure out the why. Do I have 
this allergy and obsession. My first sponsor used to tell me quite often, he said, you know, when you're sitting on the toilet with diarrhea, <laughs> why <laughs> you have diarrhea doesn't really matter at the moment. It's what are you going to do What are you going to do it? about it? Yeah. What are you going to, once I realized what I had, and this is why I couldn't stay sober, then I had to take on personal responsibility of what I was going to do about it, and I couldn't blame anything or anybody else anymore. So, so the family member, okay, so let's go back to this. So the family member, you're a family or a friend. Yeah. Do you confront this person at least once? I think so. I think that you say, I see something going on. I see that there's a problem with this. Um, I think that you and might And you admit you can't, I can't help you. Yeah. Do you want help, though? Do you want help? That's a good question. Because here's the thing. I see, I don't necessarily agree with interventions all the time. I was poorly interventioned at one point. But do you believe in consequences? I do. I absolutely believe in healthy boundaries and consequences. But if someone is going to get sober and stay sober, that desire really has to come from within. Now, that desire can be created, which is what they're trying mm-hmm. to do with the idea of an intervention. Um, but in, in prisons, sometimes, you know, the th- threat of going to prison or court issues that can send people to a 12-step program and people can get sober that way and, sure. and find the willingness there. But for, for me and my experience and, and a lot of people and that you I've... And let's be clear, you were a drug addict. I was a hardcore drug addict. I was addict. a garden variety alcoholic. Yeah. You were a drug addict. And we had the same illness. And we did. The substance doesn't matter. So it doesn't Correct. matter if it's prescription pills that's prescribed to you. Yep. It doesn't matter if it's crack or heroin from the street and it doesn't matter if it's a bottle of something something from specs i was trying to drink like a gentleman and you were trying to do heroin like a lady not possible apparently for someone like me (laughs) and mine started with uh, prescription opiates being prescribed to me after surgery i i wasn't living that life i was i was a stay-at-home mom um and then this just overtook me uh in my 30s right and so so you're doing, and here's the problem, right? If I leave this, so we're talking about consequences. Yeah. So I have this loved one at home, and I really just want them safe, and I want them to be okay, and I just love them. I love them. This is a, an emotion beyond measurement. Yeah, but you can love them to death if you don't have good, healthy boundaries with this person. And if they're a drug addict, all of my possessions that are worth any money- They're well, going to pawn them. <laughs> they're going to be gone. <laughs> you know, and so you got to kind of look at that in context of, of how far down the scale, How what's the severity of the illness? What sort of level of care? Because some people can go to just detox and stay well. Some people might need a 30-day residential. Some people might need to just go into the meetings and the rooms and get a sponsor and no treatment. Okay, so let's take two scenarios. You you are a parent, a spouse, and your loved one does not want treatment. What do you do? You pray and wait. Do you... Yeah, you have consequences and boundaries for your own personal space uh, and serenity. You kick them out of the house? You might have to kick them out of the house, absolutely. If they're of age, we'll say that. If they're right. 18 or older... If they're 18 or older, you know, not a child, you can kick them out of the house. You can cut them off financially. How does that help them? It helps them find the end of them, and it helps them seek God because you're not band-aiding their life anymore. But if you keep providing shelter and food and money, what mm-hmm. could happen? You're what would have happened to you? If that... If that would have went on, I think highly likely I would have continued to get loaded and I would have overdosed. You would have, like many times. Yeah, I think that uh, I could possibly not be alive if people continued to band-aid my life and create scenarios where I didn't have to seek God. I didn't have to work a program or seek power. So now the spouse or the parent, they sit down and they're like, look, enough. I've had enough of this. And, and And the person says, you know what, you're right, I need help. What do they do? launch into help immediately don't wait Mm. have a game plan of some opportunities because have you ever known an alcoholic or addict to be like let's get up right now and go (laughs) 
right. You got a you got a small window of opportunity if someone's willing to go to a detox, someone's willing to go to treatment or sober living or be taken to a meeting or twelve stepped, right? You have a small window of opportunity because if you wait too long, let's go to tomorrow, let's wait until Friday this right, weekend. Right. You're missing your opportunity of their, their window of willingness. Because their illnesses they can't stop they no matter can't what. Stop. Right. Like and that's even if someone know someone who's had some years sober and then that person goes back out that they think they're so baffled they thought oh they thought they were doing so good if yeah. they have this illness what the public needs to understand is they don't have a choice so can mom or wife or husband take them to a 12-step meeting would that be okay should they come on inside and sit beside them <laughs> I, like, I advise against it they might oh, give them a ride and sit in the parking lot sit in the parking lot or maybe find an Al-Anon meeting because the family member is just as powerless over their loved one as the loved one is powerless over the drug or the alcohol and they need right. uh, some relief as well and at that point the family member right is really handing that person to us, mm -hmm. the fellowship, and God. Yeah. That's really what they're doing. But the beauty of that is we are tailor-made to help these people. We know exactly how to reach them, how to win their confidence, That's and right. what they need to do to get well. That's right. You're listening to Relevant Recovery Radio. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to Relevant Recovery Radio. I'm your host, Heather Mosier. My guest today is my husband, Donnie. Howdy. Howdy. So we're talking about relapse today and, and what to do. And really and really, entering recovery and relapse for the people around, yeah. right? The, the loved ones, the friends. Yes. And how does the family member, the people around the sick, suffering alcoholic or drug addict, how do they respond? What helps? What hurts? And I think one thing I want to say is we took some time to explain the illness no right. control, no choice. They can't help it. They don't right. have a choice. Right. We talked about how many times I've had DWIs. And <laughs> no, is that, no, oh, no, 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 no. Oh. Stick to the facts. Oh, okay. It, the two symptoms are of the body and of the mind. And of the body means that when I take drink number one, it's my body on. goes, oh, oh. thank you. <laughs> That's great. For I need more. looks for drink number two more than drink number and one. looks for drink number yep. three more than drink number two and, and on and on and this on. This phenomenon of craving builds as you do more, whatever the substance is. Now, is that the same with drugs? Yeah, but there can be substance swappers. Okay. okay. Like, like just I wasn't a heavy, heavy drinker, but I cannot drink, and I know that I'm an alcoholic, because if I take uh, one drink, I swap to a different substance. And I was not an, a, a drug addict. Right. I was of a higher class standard <laughs> alcoholic. Right, right. But what I want to say is we talked about the illness of having no choice. If you're chronic and what we know. So does that mean I could go for years without putting a drink in? You potentially absolutely could. But then when I put that drink in, is it the same allergies You'll it was five years ago? You'll have the allergy till the day you die. Uh, once you have it, that's it. Once you have mm. it, that is it. There is no medical, clinical, psychosocial treatment to undo the allergy. Science has tried with things like Anabuse and Suboxin, and I think society sees how well that has worked out. I wish there was an allergy that made me go to the gym like that. <laughs> right? <laughs> like if I ate like avocado toast like a millennial, like I just buy product <laughs> want to go to the gym every day <laughs> like i wish that was the case i have the allergy of the gym i gotta go i gotta go <laughs> i gotta go i gotta go but but okay once that happens though, i want to point out one point there is a big big difference between just being abstinent not putting drinks or drugs in your body mm -hmm. versus being in recovery 
Oh. Um, and so once you and I found this fellowship and we got well, what yeah. that literally means is we worked 12 steps and we became spiritually fit. We're connected to power that keeps us sober. Were we spiritually fit right away? New, new, new. Well, mine took a few months. Yours took a few years. You were really Listen. sick, Donnie. Some are sicker than others. But however, <laughs> let me get to my point. The point is, is that if you don't become recovered in the first place, mm-hmm. it's not a relapse. You're just drinking again. You just chose to drink again. You just, well, not choice. Or slipping. Yeah, what they call it's it a slipping. Slip. Yeah. And so if someone did not work all 12 steps, but they managed to go to meetings and not drink for four months, that's not recovery. Oh, it's not. It is not. What if I go to a meeting every day? <laughs> not recovery. What about three meetings a day? <laughs> meeting makers don't always make it. You have to actually work the program, which is the steps. So what does that mean? Get a sponsor? Get a sponsor. Go through the steps like your life depends on it, because it does if you're chronic. Mm. And so someone who's not worked the steps, they're just drinking or doing drugs again. They're not recovered in the first place. However, let's talk about the caveat of someone who does get recovered and does get connected to power, works all 12 steps, gets relieved of the mental obsession, and then five years down the road, drinks or does drugs again. So yeah. many people in the fellowship are like, oh, what happened? What can I do to save him? Like, yeah, let's go go get him. And it's like, um, this is common. He got disconnected from power. That's right. Always. That is why anyone who becomes recovered relapses again. A disconnect from God will take you out quickly. The disconnect from out. And it surfaces in the because, beginning. Well, wait, let's talk about that for a second. Because and we sort of hit on it. Mm-hmm. But there's this idea that if I just go to a meeting a day or three meetings a day or program. 1,500 meetings a day that I'm in recovery. Well, A, I'm not. You're not. You're and, just abstinent. And B, it wasn't really the steps that got me sober, these steps got cleared away, that's right, to that connection. I needed to connect to a power. And that's a common misconception is that somehow meetings are the program, and they're not. Meetings are just a place where we go to talk about the program and find people to go do the program with. And we saw, you and I both, during COVID, let's look at the initial lockdown oh, wow. in 2020. Yeah. Listen, rehabs had lines out the door of people trying to get in. Mm-hmm. We knew people with years of sobriety that went, went back, back out, out because really they didn't have the program recovery. in the first place. They so we call that staying sober on the fellowship That's when right. you're just doing, 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 and hanging out and hanging out and hanging out. And when meetings went away, then they didn't have the ability. That's uh, right, to and they wouldn't sober. do Zoom, and they wouldn't because their 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 gig was to go show up at a place and hang out with people mm-hmm. for an hour, and then maybe go get coffee. And, and that's not the program. If that works for some people, well, cool. Here, I just don't want there to be this misconception that somehow that's the program. Well, when it's and not. here's why: How did you and I do during COVID? We did great. We thrived. We thrived because during we didn't, a lockdown. That's right. We didn't need those meetings. We had people to take through steps. We, we still we, had sponsees. We still had step work. We still did meet. We did all of it. Right. And we worked. And by out the way, we're not home. patting ourselves on the back no like i'm a selfish horrible drug addict and alcoholic but what i second that what i what we had was practice daily of the tools the spiritual principles tools that this program had already given us yes and some people just going to meetings miss those tools miss that we had already practiced the disciplines for a long time and when covid came came along it didn't change our practice in fact you and i almost felt guilty and censored ourselves when we would talk to people in that first nine ten eleven months of covid because we'd be like how are you doing and 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 a lot of people were like, not well. Right. And I felt guilty to say, we're doing great. Like life was really good for us. And and like I shouldn't be. But ultimately what I saw was people trying to stay sober on the fellowship or be hanging around people with lacking a true reliance or relationship with their creator. So, so we have this friend or this loved one yeah. 
they they realize that they have this allergy, right? This physical allergy that makes them drink more. Mm-hmm. We have this mental obsession that takes us back to the drink, even though it's done nothing good for us. <laughs> right. They come into the fellowship. They get a sponsor. They work the steps, and they stay sober for. We've seen it, right? We have seen people get drunk again in the first year, after five, after ten, yeah. after fifteen. I think the longest I've seen was that 25. time we were twenty nine years. Remember that lady. Mm-hmm. 29 years sober and she got drunk again. So none of us are ever immune no, to this. None of us are immune to the mental obsession, which is the insane thinking that precedes it. The way to safeguard from the mental obsession is to have a stronger connection to a higher power, which is... But this friend of ours or this loved one did not. Okay, so now either your friend or loved one, they start drinking again. What do you do? What I've watched people do is go into panic mode <laughs> and forget everything that they've learned. Yeah. Because what I've learned over the years is that I literally have zero power to stop or, or hinder this thing. And that's what I want people to understand is if if they're meant to get well, they've got to find this journey on their own. And, and it's so uncomfortable to just pray and wait and be patient. But really, like our literature talks about it, that a sick alcoholic will clamor for this and that, claiming that he can't get sober till his material needs are met for it. It says this is nonsense. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to burn the idea into your consciousness, job or no job, wife or no wife, you won't get sober if you're putting material ahead of the spiritual. You have to learn how to trust in God and clean house. And what we've seen recently, we've known a few people that go out recently, and what happens is all the people around them— Panic and want to help. What do I do? What do I do? The I'm, motive is good. Absolutely. The is it good. comes out of love. Yes. There's no doubt. And we've seen it with family members. What they have to realize is we now have to reset back to day one. Yeah. Day one. As, and here's, the, here's like the, gar, the compass, right? Mm-hmm. If a sick alcoholic is mad at you, you're probably got some healthy boundaries in place. <laughs> you're probably doing and the right And if the sick thing. alcoholic is happy with you, you're probably enabling them and loving them to death. That's right. That's right. And whether it's a, a friend, a fellowship member, uh, a loved one, mm-hmm. we have to have the same type of boundaries. And so I recently had somebody that I've known for quite a while go out and everybody is calling me and what do we do? What do we do? And I said, the Nothing. best thing you can do is leave him alone yeah. because we're back to square one. This person is drinking slash drugging mm-hmm. and anything I do to quote fingers in the air, help him, yep. is going to enable him to stay out there yep. longer. prolongs the relapse. Where if I remove all help, yeah. I don't have to be hateful or hurtful to the person, but yeah. i got to remove all outside help Detach to this person. Detach with love. I think that's an Al-Anon phrase. Detach with love, but it's perfect. Because for a drug addict, let me ask you, is there anything to get you to the end quicker than no money? <laughs> jail. <laughs> right? But even looking back on that, when I went to jail a few times, several times. Um, it was almost like God was putting me in time out. God was saying, Heather, you don't know how to live life. Right. And I'm going to have to remove your options so that you'll surrender. And so eventually I did. Let's get to the final message. The final message is that you and I hit an emotional bottom. We yeah. got into a program of recovery. Mm-hmm. We got connected to a power, which you and I call God. Yeah. But it doesn't have to be called God. And we have seen people go back out and we have to not only rely on God to watch over them, yep. we rely on God to watch over us. Yep. And that's the beauty of the program, the beauty of real recovery. Thank you, Donnie, for being my guest. I enjoy having you, like always. Thank you for asking. (laughs) Uh, You're listening to Relevant Recovery Radio. We're partnered with Matthew's Hope. Our phone number is 844-263-4673. Thanks for listening.